This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, Ange McCormack with you, filling in for Dave Marchese on the Hack podcast. On today's episode, do you think we should bring back extinct animals from the dead? Australian and American researchers think we should. They say they're closer than ever to bringing the Tassie tiger back to life. In a bit, we'll find out how they could do it and if this is the beginning of Jurassic Park-style science. Plus, you'll remember the devastating floods in New South Wales and Queensland earlier this year? Well, a damning inquiry into what happened there has been released today. So will it change how we respond to natural disasters? First, though, how come it's so hard to find a free GP? Hack! Rebates that a doctor would receive if they bulk bill have gone up at about the same rate as your fingernails grow. On Triple J. How much did it cost when you last went to the doctor? You might have found that it's getting harder to find a GP who bulk bills. That's where your appointment is free. You walk out without paying anything. And that's because heaps of clinics that used to bulk bill are now charging patients. Experts are calling it a crisis and warning that the system is at breaking point. Have you struggled to find a doctor that bulk bills or have you actually put off a doctor visit because you just can't afford it? Call me 1300 055 or text me 0439 75 In a moment, we'll talk to the minister in charge of all of this. First, though, why is this happening all of a sudden and what's the solution? Hacks political reporter Georgia Hitch explains. Mary Wattsford had just moved to Wollongong early this year when her eczema flared up and she got a urinary tract infection. And when that happens, you want to see a doctor ASAP. Unfortunately, a bit TMI, but um, I had to go see the doctor and every doctor who was bulk billed in my area were no longer taking new patients. Some places were for bulk billing in particular, um, had changed to paid and they were telling us their price, which is sometimes $40. The most I've actually been like quoted for to go to the doctor is $80. That's so expensive for, you know, someone on like my wage. If Mary's story is hitting home, you're definitely not alone. More and more clinics are moving from free GP appointments to something called mixed billing. This is how it works. When you go for a regular GP appointment, the government gives your doctor just under 40 bucks back. That is called the Medicare rebate. Your doctor can either just leave it at that, meaning you don't pay anything, or they might get you to pay a bit extra. And that is called mixed billing. So why are more GPs doing this lately? Well, the Medicare rebate has only gone up 65 cents since 2013 when a freeze was put on increasing it. And heaps of GPs say getting back just under $40 doesn't cover their costs anymore because everything, as we know, is getting more expensive. The problem is, though, if less and less doctors bulk bill, people who rely on free GP visits might have to start making some pretty grim decisions about what's most important to them. It would mean that I wouldn't be able to afford all of the other things that I need to, so I'd be leaving myself short for rent, for food, for electricity, for phone bills. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm not able to fulfil those requirements, but that's what it would come to because without my health, I really don't have too much. Kira is a full-time uni student on Ghana country in Adelaide, and even though she's getting Centrelink payments and has a casual job, she says after rent and bills and seeing specialist doctors, there's not a heap left to shell out. Whatever the person's circumstances are, whether it's somebody who is studying and wanting to better themselves or somebody who doesn't have the capacity to work full time, they shouldn't be penalised for wanting to do that or for having that condition or for whatever reason. It should be better than this. We shouldn't be put into a situation where we're not able to afford something that's so basic, like being able to go to the GP and get help. So what's the answer? 
Well, doctors want to see a big increase, like 10% to the Medicare rebate, especially to take into account that more people are going to the doctor for longer appointments about things like their mental health or chronic conditions. The government's put together a task force to look at Medicare and Health Minister Mark Butler says he knows there's heaps of problems to fix and they want to get it right. Certainly people on low and fixed incomes, uh, low-income families, families with children have been able to feel very safe about going to a doctor and not having to be charged a gap fee. And I want to see that continue as a centrepiece of the Medicare system. It's worth mentioning that there are still bulk billing clinics, but with less of them around, the wait times to see a doctor in some places is going crazy. For 19-year-old Zanita, watching what's happening has made her even more grateful she has access to a dedicated youth health service that's run by Anglicare. Zanita lives on Ngunnawal, Nambri country in Canberra and sees a doctor at the Junction Health Service around once a month. It's greatly improved my quality of life. I was fortunate enough to be introduced to the Junction at arguably one of the most stressful experiences of my life and I cannot imagine where I would be if I didn't have their support um, and the services that they've provided for me. Zanita is also on JobSeeker and says if she was ever faced with losing her access to bulk billing, there's no question her health would suffer. It definitely would mean that I wouldn't be able to see the doctor as as regularly. Um, it would mean that I would let a lot of my health problems or concerns go unaddressed, um, which for someone with uh, Tourette's syndrome and a few other chronic uh, conditions could be extremely dangerous for me and for not only my physical but also my emotional well-being. Hack on Triple J. Georgia Hitch with that story. There's clearly heaps of issues with Medicare and bulk billing here, so let's talk about it with the minister in charge. Mark Butler is the Federal Minister for Health and Aged Care. Minister, why are my listeners having to pay, you know, like 40 bucks to see a GP just for two minutes, just to do something really simple, like get a medical certificate for a sick day? Well, that really terrific intro um, spelled it out. What we've seen <clears throat> over the last 10 years are, are cuts and neglect to Medicare. And unsurprisingly, that's meant that doctors have either had to reduce their level of bulk billing, so that system where people can go to the doctor completely free of charge, uh, and where they do charge gap fees to see those gap fees climb higher and higher. Now, for the first time in the 40-year history of Medicare, the average gap fee that people are paying for a standard consult with their GP is actually more than the Medicare rebate itself. That's never never been the case before. And in the lead into the election, we just heard from so many people across the country, it's never been harder to get into a doctor than it is right now. And it's never been more expensive, which is why strengthening Medicare was right at the centre of our election policy. And I know those cuts happened under the former government, <laughs> under the coalition government, government, but the freeze started back in 2013 under the Labor, Labor government, didn't it? Isn't this partly a Labor responsibility, how Medicare has gone? Well, what happened back in 2013 is that the the uh, annual increase to the rebate was shifted to the financial year. So it would happen at the beginning of the, of, of the financial year on the 1st of July. It had previously been some months earlier than that. So that wasn't a freeze. I mean, it did mean that, that doctors had to wait a few more months for their annual increase, but it was made very clear in 2013 that there would still be an annual increase to MBS rebates or Medicare rebates. What then happened was Tony Abbott tried to introduce a GP tax that everyone, pensioners, low-income households, everyone would have to pay. And when he couldn't get that through the Senate, because we blocked it along with the Greens Party and other people, 
he then extended a freeze for six full years, which right. meant effectively that GPs had a wage freeze. And, and unsurprisingly, they had to increase their gap fees to keep up with costs. OK, let, let, let's look at the future, though. You know, last month, the Medicare rebate for GP consults went up 65 cents. GPs say that's nowhere near enough. Are you going to raise it more? Well, we committed um, an extra $250 million a year to Medicare and I said that I wanted to sit down with doctors and nurses and patient groups and explore the best possible way to spend that money. That that money is on the table. As I think your intro said, um, we've got a task force that is meeting on a monthly basis between now and Christmas to work out how best to spend that money. Now, there are different ideas about that, whether it's just an increase to the rebate or whether it's you know employing more nurses and allied health professionals in GP surgeries, or many other ideas for that matter. So um, we're going to work through those ideas, discuss them maturely, and next year the money will start to flow. Not just not just um, more money year, in so, year, but smarter. So so people can expect you know these issues with bulk billing, really long wait times to get a, a free doctor appointment or you know a bulk bill doctor appointment are going to happen for until next year. Well, we only just got elected several weeks ago. Um, the money is right. in the budget for next year. The, the, the first full financial year that will be in government will be when the money starts to flow. That was made very clear in the election campaign. As well as, well as that, we're rolling out um, urgent care services across the country, um, not only to make it easier to see a doctor, but to take pressure off hospital emergency departments. Yeah, at the I, moment, I wanted to ask about those, Minister. How many of those are up and running now? How many of my listeners can go out and, and access those urgent care appointments? Because for a lot of people on the text line, this is really urgent. Yeah, and just, just reminding that we've been in government for nine or ten weeks um, and we've committed to rolling them out. They'll, they'll go through the budget in October. So uh, are the any of them up there. and running in the next month? Well, no, no. The, mon the money will flow from the October budget. Um, state governments and GP practices uh, are already ex ex expressing interest in setting those services up. They can't be set up overnight. They require new staff. They require new equipment. So these, these services out of hospitals will have the sorts of equipment that you need, for example, if you have a break of your arm or you have a deep cut or you have one of those other minor emergencies that, that at the moment are clogging up our hospitals. So but these things can't be rolled out in a matter of weeks, but they will be rolled out as quickly as possible. They'll, they'll be up and running next year. And that, frankly, um, is as quickly as you can get a whole new medical service out into the community. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack speaking with Health Minister Mark Butler. We're talking about how difficult <coughs> it is to get a bulk billed GP appointment at the moment. Basically, Charlotte from Brisbane, you say it's actually ridiculous. No doctors in my area that area bulk bill anymore. I have to take a day off work just to dry, drive and find one, which kind of defeats the purpose. Then I don't get paid and might as well pay. I mean, Minister, what's your advice for someone like Charlotte in Brisbane who's not alone and lots of people like her are going through that. Well, I, I know and I've been hearing that for for the 18 months that I've been back in the health portfolio that, that this is an increasing, increasingly regular story. One of the things I've talked about over the last several days is we don't actually have good data um, to tell us the true picture about bulk billing. And the former government used to tell us that 88% of um, GP mm. services were bulk billed. Well, that just does not gel with what patients and your listeners are telling you, with what doctors have been telling me, which is that because of those rebate freezes, bulk billing has been declining. And those data are a bit skewed by the fact that there's a lot of COVID-19 related measures like vaccinations and 
COVID testing and the like that have to be bulk billed by law. Um, so that sort of skews the data a bit. But there is no question in my mind that, that the truth of the, of the matter is that bulk billing is in decline uh, and there will be no higher priority. I mean, we're the party that created Medicare. There will be no higher priority for a Labor government than to start to turn that around. But I've got to be honest, it's not going to happen in a matter of weeks. Minister, on this program, we talk a lot about mental health. Young people mm. can get on a mental health care plan, but to do that, they have to go to the GP. And young people are yep. the ones who need these plans the most. They also have the least money to spare. You can see where I'm going with this. Like, is this going to lead to an even worse mental health crisis for young people? Because they can't get into a free GP or they're on a waiting list. Mm, absolutely. absolutely. That, I mean, that's one of my, my greatest worries about, about the situation we confront right now. Uh, and this is a matter that's been hugely aggravated by the COVID pandemic. I mean, the data that we got from the ABS, the Bureau of Statistics last month, showed that about 40% of young people um, had experienced a mental disorder in the previous 12 months. That's through the COVID pandemic. I mean, that is such a massive increase on the already big numbers we'd seen before COVID, that uh, I know that there's a lot of young people out there in distress that are not able to access services. We've put some additional money into Headspace services, for example. Um, you know, we've got There's additional services for better access. At Headspaces as well, though, isn't there? Absolutely, and that's why we put some money into those those services. That money is that is specifically aimed at reducing waiting lists and also expanding some of their um, consulting rooms so that they can employ more staff. But you know, this is this is um, a really serious pressure. Uh, out there in the community. I, I know I hear that all the time myself. And you're right, they have to see a GP before they are able to access some of those um, Medicare subsidised psychological services. Minister, the news this week, just quickly, that former PM Scott Morrison secretly held five portfolios. It, it doesn't do a lot for my listeners about trust in government and politicians. They feel it's shady, that makes them lose faith. How worried are you about the trust Australians have in politicians? I'm deeply worried. I mean, this has been a, a, a long time trend over the course of my adult life. There is less and less trust in the political process, not just here in Australia. You see it, frankly, across the world. And it's very much the job of the current generation of politicians to do what we can to, to lift that trust. Um, certainly, a, you know, a big part of that is our commitment to putting in place an anti-corruption commission. We're working very closely with the crossbench on that, with the Greens Party, with all of the new teal independents that were elected at the last election, substantially on a platform of an anti-corruption commission. But this latest revelation that, that the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, had sworn himself in without telling people into a portfolio is frankly just extraordinary and unprecedented. I mean, the Westminster system of mm. government we have here, have had for a very long time, rests on the idea that if you are a Minister of the Crown, you have enormous power and influence over your country, but the flip side of that is that you're accountable to the people, you're accountable to the parliament, uh, and you can't be accountable if, if you're not telling anyone that you've been sworn into portfolios. It's just extraordinary. I'm just checking, Minister, are you the only Minister for Health? You're not job sharing with Anthony Albanese? <laughs> are you sure? Uh, Prime Minister Albanese is a stickler for process, I, I, I can tell you, as has every Prime Minister before him been. Okay. Uh, okay. Good to, good, former one. good to check. It, it's been a bit of a crazy week, so you've got to ask these questions, don't you? Um, Mark exactly. Butler, thanks so much for talking to me and my listeners on Triple J. Thanks, Ange. That was Mark Butler there, the Minister for Health and Aged Care. Hack. Today, we stand in Lismore with many businesses now either have reopened or on the path to reopening, but there is a very, very long journey ahead. On Triple J.
In March, we brought you coverage of the devastating floods in New South Wales and Queensland. There were those videos of locals getting in their tinnies, doing DIY rescues in the middle of the night. It was unbelievable. Nine people died in those floods. More than 14,000 homes were damaged. And locals have been saying all along that the response to that crisis just wasn't up to scratch. Today, the New South Wales Premier handed down an independent inquiry into the flooding in New South Wales and agreed to all the recommendations. Were you affected by the New South Wales floods? How have you found the recovery? Call me, 1300-0555-36 or text in 0439-757-555. Let's take a look at the report from today. Ellie Grounds has more. I've noticed my life, my life has pretty much changed to the fact that, you know, I've got a lot of anxiety issues, you know, when you hear that rain's going to come, you get like pretty much like really bad anxiety. This is 23-year-old Talisha. I met her for the first time in early March, just after her house in South Lismore, where she lived with her partner and her dad, had been ravaged by flood water. They woke up to the flood at three in the morning, but didn't get rescued for another nine hours. Talisha says the impact of that on her mental and physical health has been pretty devastating. I've been struggling with it like for quite a quite a couple of months now, but I haven't really done anything about it. I'm just trying to push through, trying to push past like the pretty much the trauma that I went through, and now it's just getting a whole load of me. And yeah, it's pretty awful. Over the last few months, an independent inquiry into how the floods in the Northern Rivers and Western Sydney regions unfolded has heard stories from people like Talisha who lived through the disaster. Residents told the inquiry things like... Let's be clear, almost every system during the disaster failed. They didn't fail because they were designed wrong. They failed because they were brittle, because the disaster people had planned is never the disaster you're actually facing. And as a young person, I'm really concerned about what the government's doing because Lismore doesn't even feel survivable for me into the future. Today, the report with the findings of that inquiry was made public. Here's New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet. Today, the government releases that report and also responds. Uh, we've accepted every recommendation. Um, some will take longer uh, to implement than others. Uh, but the focus of the government will be to implement these recommendations as quickly as possible. There are 28 recommendations in this report, and one of the main things that residents whose homes were smashed by the floods have been waiting to hear about is whether the government will buy their houses off them. Those people who have lost their homes, who are in dire circumstances, we will work um, as a result of this report um, to implement um, a land swap and buyback scheme that will be targeted in specific areas. The report recommends people who live in the highest risk areas of the Lismore floodplain should be relocated urgently and says developing more homes in the Hawkesbury Nepean Valley should be increasingly discouraged. Professor Mary O'Kane, a scientist and engineer who co-led the inquiry, reckons it's time to stop living on New South Wales floodplains. One very important aspect of the environment is we say that the floodplain should be recognised as assets, but not assets that we live on. Assets that we use for a variety of things, whether it be renewable energy, parks, biodiversity offsets. There's lots of very important uses for the floodplains and they should come back into public ownership. The Premier says right now it's still not clear who is eligible for the buyback and land swap scheme. 
but the government is working through it and expressions of interest for the scheme should be open by the end of the month. The government's setting up two new permanent bodies, a reconstruction authority and a state emergency operations centre. And remember that government agency that was formed after the Black Summer bushfires, Resilience New South Wales? That's going to be rejigged. Into a leaner, nimble agency known as Recovery New South Wales that will focus on the first 100 days post-event. The night that it all happened, like the SES and that, I guess they were trying their hardest, but they did, like, I know, push it off for a couple of hours for the fact that it, they weren't rescuing anyone until the morning, which was pretty, like, devastating. The heads of the inquiry kind of agree with Talisha. They found the SES failed to use many of its available resources and to follow emergency management plans. To fix this, a new full-time State Emergency Management Operations Coordinator will be appointed. The back offices of the RFS and the SES are also going to merge, so there's less time spent on admin. The ABC has reported the inquiry also backed calls to raise the Warragamba Dam near Sydney, which would give 46,000 people more time to evacuate in a future flood. One of the things we don't know enough how much of this was climate change. Professor O'Kane says the kind of storms that caused the rain have occurred before. But what was unusual was the intensity of the rain and the fact that the rain stalled and unfortunately stalled right over Lismore. And we saw this again in the more recent floods in the Hawkesbury Nepean. The inquiry recommends New South Wales become a world centre for disaster research and the government pour money into climate and weather research and developing technology so we can better understand and predict extreme rainfall. There is a lot of stuff being proposed and the report is pretty overwhelming. Talisha just hopes it means her hometown will never have to go through anything like this year's floods again. Well, of course we want to stay here as well. Like I said, you know, our family's here. Everyone's going to stay in Lismore because you want to be positive. You don't want to move. You don't want to put your life to somewhere else to feel pressured about, you know, moving to a different land because Lismore's our home. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds reporting there. Beck McNaught is a research leader at Resilient Byron. They're a community organisation working on Bundjalung country. They've been involved in the recovery and response to the floods. Let's talk to Beck now. Beck, what was your, what did you make of the recommendations we just heard about? Do they go far enough in your view? Hi there. Um, look, as you say uh, in the intro, there's a lot of recommendations and uh, I'm still digesting and working my way through all of them. But um, look, uh, there's a lot in there that um, we can take out of it. I think, unfortunately, we can't ignore the fact that the 2022 floods aren't a one-off. Um, the report highlights that, unfortunately, our atmosphere is warmer, holding more water, mm. and that climate change is contributing to more extreme bursts of rainfall in New South Wales. So not only do we need to prepare for disasters, but I also think we need to look at some of the root causes in terms of addressing climate change as well. Mm. And your community was really let down by the government during the floods. That's what we've heard from heaps of locals. I mean, do you have faith that the government won't let you down in implementing these recommendations and going forward? Look, I think we need to acknowledge that when a really large-scale disaster hits, um, the community are always going to be the first responders and the responders who are formally involved will be do working their guts out and doing everything they can to help. Um, they're just limited by the resources they have as well. 
um, we need to actively prepare communities for these events and that includes supporting leadership by communities and valuing local knowledge and information during disasters is really important. Um, and, and so too is even giving communities and the organisations representing them a seat at the disaster coordination table. Mm. Drawing upon that knowledge. Yeah, yeah and, and one of those recommendations from today was to train local people to essentially become first responders, um, which a lot of you up in, in, in that area did anyway. I mean, what do you make of that idea? Is, is that a good idea? Are some locals, you know, not in the best mental state to go through that kind of training after what happened? Uh, I think there's a lot of people who have been given... Um, I guess are buoyed by the disaster in that they're really wanting to do something about it and wanting to make a difference. And so supporting communities to be trained, not just in the nitty gritty flood response, but also about um, creating community connections and helping communities to thrive. That real community development stuff as well, I think needs to come out of it. Um, that, that we um, need those community connections because when the disaster hit, um, that's what we all drew upon to, to get stuff done. Mm. Well, um, Beck McNaught, thanks so much for talking to me today and, you know, good luck with the recovery um, that lies ahead. I know it's not over and we'll be really interested to follow how all of these, you know, recommendations play out, but thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Beck McNaught there. She's from Resilient Byron. Hack. There's no technologies that we need to bring an animal back from extinction now that we don't already have in hand. On Triple J. Yeah, what if extinct animals could come back to life? That's the plot of Jurassic Park, and we know how that turned out. But scientists are very interested in doing this for Australia's own Tasmanian tiger. The Tassie tiger died out almost 100 years ago, but a lab from the Uni of Melbourne and this biotech company in Texas are actually teaming up and they reckon they'll be able to bring the Tassie tiger back within 10 years. Some scientists say it won't work, that this is all just a big spectacle. So let's talk to Associate Professor Pavinda Kaur about this. She's a biotechnologist from the University of Western Australia. Professor Kaur, yeah, what do you think about this? Should Tassie tigers make a comeback? First of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. You're welcome. And good, good evening to all the listeners. This is definitely a very exciting times we're living in where we can actually think and can from a scientific point of view, from a biotechnology point of view, it's absolutely true that we can bring back thylacine. But the question here is that shall we, if we can? Mm, that, that's the, quick, the key question, isn't it? It comes into ethics, you know, just because we can something, should we? Um, what, explain or unpack some of those ethical questions that are at play here that scientists are really interested in. I think the biggest question we've got is, uh, look, Australia is on the top of the list when it comes to mammal extinctions. If we only talk about mammals, because that thalassine is one of the mammals like us humans, okay? So in the past, 35% of all the global mammal extinctions since 1500 have been Australian. So 30 out of 84 worldwide extinctions have wow. been Australian extinctions, which is quite a phenomenal number when you think about uh, how endemic our species are, how special our terrestrial animals are, because they're not found anywhere else in the world, 85% of them not found anywhere else in the world. So, and if you bring it back to, you know, bring back the thylacine, absolutely, why not? But when you have such a small money, 
or resource that has been set aside or has been actually funded for conservation research then would you spend all that five million or ten million dollars or whatever the amount is to bring back one species because that will require the most advanced genetic resources genetic data and the and the you know the technology for that particular species. Right. So, or we'll, yeah. so you're yeah. saying, you know, that in Australia we have all of these other species that are on the brink of extinction um, and maybe we should be focusing on keeping them alive rather than spending all this money on bringing back one that we've sort of been able to live without for more than a, about 100 years. Absolutely. Any, any day I will pick preservation over resurrection. Uh, because this has been gone for like 100 years, right? Of course, most of the Tasmania is under, you know, reserve. And there is probably not going to be that much of a disaster if we are able to bring back thylacine. But having said that, it's only 95% of the thylacine's genome has been pieced together. And there's still gaps there. So there is quite a lot of work. It's not it's not trivial work. That's all I'm trying to say. And it will require quite a large amount of resources. And so it's the choice that Australia has to make whether you would want to resurrect one or actually save a thousand for that price. Yeah, they're really big questions to ask ourselves about our, our fauna and, and they're not easy ones to answer when there's such complicated processes. But um, Professor Vavinder Kaur, thanks so much for talking to us about that. It's really an interesting um, development, isn't it? It is. And interesting times we are living in. Hack on Triple J. That was Associate Professor Pawinda Kaur there from the University of Western Australia. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Hack Podcast. We'll be back with you tomorrow.